listeners of Out of Character, this is the editor speaking, and sadly right now, I can't get Jutra because of the thing, I happen to be finishing this at 3 in the morning, but in this episode, Scott had a little bit of crackling, and I'd ask you please forgive it, there wasn't much I could do to fix it, but this episode is definitely a treat, and I wholly recommend it. Enjoy the show. Welcome everybody again to another episode of Out of Character with Jupiter Sanders. I am Jupiter Sanders and today we're going to talk about H.P. Lovecraft and Call of Cthulhu. We're going to really take a deep dive into that and Oz has joined us again. Hello yes, Oz. Yes I do. Hello. And also today we are super super lucky to have somebody who's an expert on this joining us, Scott Dord, who I've been told is the keeper of arcane lore on the two active How We Roll AP shows that relate to Call of Cthulhu. But Scott, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that and also other areas that make you the expert for us today on Call of Cthulhu? <laughs> sure. I don't know that I call myself an expert, but I know a bit about the subject. So yes, yeah, I've, uh, as you said, I record with How We Roll. I've run a couple of games for them. The, the Two-Headed Serpent, which is a campaign I co-wrote with my friends Paul Fricker and Matt Sanderson, and the introductory chapter to Masks of Dialothotep, uh, which I wrote for the new edition. And let's see, outside of that... I'm one of the co-hosts of the Good Friends of Jackson Elias podcast, uh, again with Paul Fricker and Matt Sanderson, wherein we talk about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, weird fiction, and other gaming stuff. Um, I worked on Call of Cthulhu 7th edition. I've written a bunch of stuff for the game over the years, as well as a number of other RPGs, most of which have got Cthulhu in the name. I was the line editor for World War Cthulhu for a while, but yeah, these days I mostly do a bit of freelance writing, some freelance editing, and a lot of podcasting. I mean, as far as a resume goes, sir, between the three of us, you are the expert today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that. I know. he's he's Not only is he smart, but he sounds super smart, and <laughs> I am I am just sitting here, just the biggest grin on my face, like, <laughs> so excited <laughs> to have him here today. Jupes yeah, a candy well, candy store, this one. <laughs> <laughs> it is great. So Scott, you and I talked a little bit before we started recording that we we've we're, we've mm. done our research because we're professionals. I don't know how much <laughs> research have you done, us? Okay, so you have prefaced this by saying that you are professionals. I agree with that. I am not. Uh-huh. So <laughs> the most that I have done is I hopped on YouTube and listened to a couple of dramatic retellings of some H.P. Lovecraft stories. Mm-hmm. As to the man's life, uh, almost nothing. So when people have a knee-jerk reaction about H.P. Lovecraft, I fall probably within that category. So when I hear, oh, well, he was really racist, I'm like, okay, yeah, that tracks. But I didn't go any further into it. Oh my gosh, then you're in for a treat. I love treats. (laughs) So we're going to, I'm going to start. Let's just go with why why we're doing this, because mainly what Oz just said, that knee-jerk reaction I hear from everybody. Oh, Lovecraft, a racist. That's it. Like that that's that's the extent of what everybody says. He's a racist. He did call of Cthulhu and he's a racist. That's it. And I was like, there's gotta be more to it, right? There's there's more to a person than just that. 
Yes, yes, there definitely is. I mean, at the same time, you know, there is no getting around the fact that he was a racist. And, yeah, I, I, I don't want to downplay that in any way. But like you say, I mean, there's a lot more to him than that. But you can't get yes. around the fact that he was a big racist. He was. Unapologetic, un unrepented. I think towards the end of his life, he started to kind of soften, but still yeah. pretty much in, in today's world would still be considered, mm, you're a racist. Doesn't, you know, maybe you're just not 100%, maybe you're like 99, but you're still a racist <laughs> for all, all intents and purposes. You're still a racist, sir. There is a lot more to the man that, that created this this mythos and, and what a mythos. Mm. I mean, the the philosophy that is present in pretty much all of his writing is, <sighs> nihilist is the word you used. Nihilistic. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, it's perhaps a bit more complex than just nihilism, but mm -hmm. certainly he wanted to move away from anthropocentric horror. The, the fact that he, horror until then, until this time that he started writing it, was very rooted in gothic tropes. It was, you know, it was all kind of ghosts and witches and demons and sort of religious and folkloric figures, but everything was very human. And what Lovecraft did was he introduced not just the alien and the weird, the whole thing. Well, actually introduced maybe an overstatement because other writers were doing it as well. But he really led the vanguard. And he did all that. But also he moved humanity out of the spotlight to some extent and sort of said, in the cosmic scale of things, we don't matter. That there are cosmic entities that I'm going to write about to whom you know we are no more than insects or bacteria and that this is the scale that humanity operates on in my world and that was that was something really quite new uh, that and it i think made it all the more unsettling not just as horror but like you say from a philosophical point of view mm -hmm. no and and there's you know when you point out the whole gothic court there's a reason that you know his his stuff was birthed from those stories and there's there's a reason mm. which which we'll get into but Oz you don't know much about Lovecraft the life of so I would like to tell you the story of a young boy okay you ready Oz right. for story time I'm I'm 100% ready for this let's go okay and please feel free to interrupt interject anytime guys just it's conversational I'm, I'm not running the show here oh, that's I just dangerous. I, just want to tell you the story of a little boy born in 1890, the only child of a wealthy family. It was the mother's side of the family that was wealthy. The father married into this family, but an only child, wealthy, 1890s, New England in Rhode Island. By the time he was three, he was able to read and write proficiently, which I think is a testament to the wealth and, and the, the being an only child, those tend to have, you know, a lot more adult attention. So he probably smart and was taught by all the adults in his life. But also at three, his father was committed after a, a year of dealing with a, a mental illness, was committed to a psychiatric hospital when the little boy was three. So his father figure is taken from him. Luckily, he has a grandfather who becomes his, his war the center of his universe and his his father figure. This grandfather read him stories, the gothic horror stories, 
the Grimm's fairy tales when he was a child, set him on his knee, read him these tales complete with sound effects and was when the grandfather was around because he was a businessman earning money. That's how you keep your wealth. He was gone, but when he was there, he would read stories to this little boy and the little boy loved these stories, right? Yeah, he even he even started writing them at that kind of age. I, I, apparently, he wrote his first story when he was about five or six years old, uh, and I, I seem to remember it was a riff on one of the Arabian Nights. There you go. At five years old, he began to suffer from nightmares. He described these nightmares as winged creatures that would hurl him through space at dizzying speeds, that would impale and poke at him with their tridents. These would later show in his writings with the name Night Gaunts. Oh, that sounds familiar. Okay. At five. Yeah. Five years old. Yes. Yeah. Well, and also that led to one of the characteristics of the Night Gaunt, which is they paralyze by tickling, which Mm -hmm. sounds farcical, but the way he describes it in the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath actually sounds quite sinister. And if you think about it in terms of Lovecraft experiencing night terrors and sleep paralysis, which this all ties into, then, yeah, this idea of being tickled into paralysis by this faceless, demonic being actually becomes quite terrifying. Yes. Yeah. I, I, for one, don't like being tickled. So it is horrifying to me. At six, his grandmother dies. Now, he is left with a grandfather, his mother, because his father is in the hospital. And he has a couple aunts. His mother and his aunts dote on him. But due to this loss, the grandmother dying, the, the father in the hospital, the mother, this little boy's mother and his aunts take to wearing in the you know 1890s, as it was customary, all black. They are in mourning. They wear all black, the black fails the black shawls the black giant skirts and everything and it was that in itself was pretty horrifying to this little boy as well he was afraid of them and i could i could imagine in these you know the black shawls they do look like black winged creatures you know and, and he was afraid of how they dressed but you know they were the people that he was left with so you know he had to deal with that but i find it interesting that around the same time that they start wearing black and the grandmother dies. That's also around that same time that the nightmare nightmares kind of also begin and and continue for him. Which I, I, I it's a lot of I, I think the family deals with with some loss. And at eight is when this little boy father finally dies in the hospital. So eight years old now. Father's taken from him and then passes in the hospital grandmother's taken from him, which the whole family suffers that loss, right? On top of this, being the only child, the aunt and the mother dote on him, but there's also another darker side. The mother tends to refer to the boy as grotesque, yeah, telling him to hide himself. People shouldn't be forced to look at his face. What? Yeah. 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 And now, Lovecraft was a fairly unusual-looking man, but not mm-hmm. only by any means. He had a very pronounced lantern jaw, and he he was very sort of tall and slender. I, I've read speculation that he might have had Marfan syndrome, which could explain his his body type. But whatever it is, I mean, yeah, he he certainly looked unusual, but like I say, by no means ugly. 
I, I have read speculation that a lot of his mother's sort of focus on his appearance and concern about that might have been related to the fact that what what Lovecraft's father died of was tertiary syphilis. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, he you know he had psychotic episodes which led to him being hospitalised you know, when Lovecraft was three, but ended up pretty much uh, well paralysed and possibly comatose for a lot of those later years until he eventually died of the syphilis. But I think Lovecraft's mother might might have been worried that there was some degree of congenital syphilis that you know she was aware that this was the case and that perhaps this had influenced her son's appearance and it was somehow within him and you know if this is the case then if she was really paranoid about that i mean that could explain why she was so obsessed with that but whatever it was yeah you're right i mean this scarred lovecraft for the rest of his life I, I can imagine that she showed love, I mean, as her only child, the only, you know, her only child, um, a mother's love, but then coupled with the grief and loss of her husband and her mother, coupled with, I mean, you know, syphilis was scary back in the day, like, you know, mm. and being your husband, you didn't know if you got it yourself, right? So it that that had to be a fear and then fear for him, her child, that he may have have it as well. and. So I, I mean, the loss, the grief, uh, and and the fear. I imagine this woman probably dealt with a certain amount of not mental illness, but it it had to affect her mentally greatly to where she would do this to her child, oscillate between love and then telling him, "You're grotesque. Nobody should have to look at you. You should hide yourself." And also during his schooling, he would often be kept home from school. She would say, due to his breakdowns or due to some illness that he had she kept him home from school now was that because she was afraid to let him out of her sight or was it because he didn't want anyone else to see him or or what but she kept him home a lot there is some speculation that he might actually have had some kind of childhood illness i forget the technical name but the, he, he exhibited tics and strange behavior as well as mood swings when he was a child and th there's a proper name for it but uh, Coria Coria minor was it that C -H -O -R -E -A, minor yeah yes I, yeah i was thinking of some fighters dance which is the, the common yes name that's it, the yes. common name yeah 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 it would be tics you would move like herky-jerky kind of movements like you would just all of a sudden like you would just stand up for no reason or your leg would move for no reason that kind of thing so that could explain you know why he was kept back from school or like you say it could just be that his mother because of everything else that happened was insanely overprotective and perhaps all this stuff was psychosomatic it's the kind of thing scholars have tied themselves up in knots trying to pick out from the documentary evidence but i don't think there's ever been a conclusion yeah. No, I, I, I mean, records back then. And I think also in Victorian times, I think it was pretty much you didn't want a lot of info out about you tried to keep things hidden because of scandal. So, I mean, that's probably why maybe it wasn't really well documented or really talked about, you know, because that was the time that was the social etiquette. But at eight, he also writes in my, in my research, I found he wrote his first horror story at eight. But you're probably right. He probably wrote 
earlier stuff. At 12, he has a love of astronomy and begins the Rhode Island Journal of Astronomy at 12. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he was a precocious little sod. Was it? <laughs> That's one way of putting it. What would you describe it as? How, uh, what do you think of this child so far in 12 years of life now? At, at 12 years old, I mean, he's he's got a good, like, I won't call it stable, but at least he's got a decent household to grow up in. But, I mean, at 12, he's already written books, and now he's got this astronomy journal, and I can't be ours to, you know, write two pages of fiction for a Shadowrun character and a tabletop game I'm playing. And on top of this, his grandfather, Whipple Phillips, had this fantastic library at home as well and collected all sorts of, like you mentioned, gothic horror and, and weird tales and myths and legends. And apparently this was you know, Lovecraft's real education when he was growing up, that while he you know, didn't necessarily get that much proper schooling, that he you know he just immersed himself in all of this from the age you could read and just you know devoured it constantly yes and and it's interesting as that you you mentioned the stable uh household it's also around this time that his grandfather's health begins to deteriorate and the the family's wealth begins to erode oh did i did i just jinx this Is that what <laughs> you happened? jinxed it way to go oh. you jinxed the poor Wonderful. boy Good job. It's my fault. <laughs> it's my fault he writes horror. <laughs> at, at 14, his grandfather dies. His center of his world, his father figure, gone. And the majority of the family's wealth now gone. At 14, little boy becomes depressed and suicidal. Yeah, they also had to move out of the family home at this stage because they had quite a big family house on Angel Street to themselves, which sadly has been demolished since then. It's now the site of a block of flats. But uh, there's they, they moved effectively just down the road, still on Angel Street, to a flat that was uh, subdivided out of a, a house there that was just a fraction of the size of, of the house that Lovecraft had grown up in. And he did not react well to this because, apart from anything else, it meant having to leave that library behind. But, I mean, having said that, I, I visited the house when I went to Necronomicon a couple of years back. I mean, obviously, I didn't go inside because people lived there. But, I mean, even, you know, even you know, if they were only living in half the house, looking at it now, it, it actually looks pretty nice. Yeah, I, I've not had the, the pleasure of going out and touring Rhode Island and seeing those sites. So that is something I'll probably have to do. Oh, yeah, I do recommend it. Oh, good. I'll have to try it. Uh, yeah. So he enters high school basically around this time, right? Again, still, his mother keeps him home most of the time. He doesn't get a diploma, but he does excel when he is in school. He excels at chemistry and physics. He loves them. But at the same time, his advancements in the sciences was somewhat let down by the fact that he really didn't like maths. He, yeah, uh, apparently spending any time doing much in the way of maths would give him crippling headaches. Um, which would just lay him out for days. So, right. <laughs> but that that did mean that you know his. I, I don't know whether this was related at all to the fact that he dropped out of school before getting his diploma. 
Uh, but, I mean, it certainly stopped him going off to university, but it, it also meant that when he tried to continue his studies separately, um, you know, for example, you know, studying organic chemistry at home, he didn't get very far with it because of this inability to cope with the maths, which is a shame. <laughs> yeah, no, I, but again, I, I, I totally relate. I <laughs> don't, I am terrible at math. So he didn't really, he didn't get his diploma. He ends up just, you know, eventually you're just out of school. He's writing. We know that. He, he's a prolific writer. He's writing still. And I assume it's, he's still in Rhode Island, but I assume he's, Scott, did he start like getting into the Pulp Fiction and writing for the Pulp Fiction magazine, submitting stories? Is that how he started making his money? Did he start doing this late teens or early 20s? No, no, it was it was later than that because his road into doing that was that he got involved, first of all, with amateur journalism. This was his first love. That he actually ended up, well, he actually ended up becoming president of the, the uh, Amateur Press Association or whatever it's called. But he, yeah, this, this was his passion. He published a journal what was it, The Conservative, I think it was called, but it certainly networked with a lot of other amateur journalists at the time and, and wrote about politics and the sciences and basically everything else that came to mind. And I mean, he'd written, obviously, a bit of weird fiction at this stage, but nothing for publication. But it was through the contacts that he made there and people encouraging him to write fiction because they'd seen some of it, and that's what led him onto his his fiction career. First of all, publishing a, a few stories in journals that other amateur journalists were publishing, but then you know finally moving on and submitting stuff to Weird Tales, and and other pulps. But yeah, I don't think that really took off until his late twenties. Yeah, because I in my research I really couldn't find much in between that those high school kind of those late teen years until 29 like there's this gap in the in my history other than the writings that he you know but there's this gap i I, the only like account i found was a a story about his neighbors when he, he and his mother lived in that really small duplex neighbors heard him and his mother in like shouting at each other late into the night and and it concerned some neighbors except one of the neighbors recognized what they were saying and they were quoting like reading acting out shakespeare to one another like that's a weird thing to to do i guess guess, but on the other hand i guess this was before radio before television they didn't really go out much so yeah you made your own entertainment and entertainment (laughs) might have been putting on your own production of titus andronicus I don't know if the neighbors appreciated it, but <laughs> <laughs> they did it late into the night. And I'm like, okay. So right now, what I get, and, and this is just me from the now time, looking back on this, I'm getting this weird kind of Norman Bates and his mom kind <laughs> yes. of vibe, right? Yeah. I mean, certainly, yeah, their relationship didn't sound entirely healthy particularly uh, you know as as he reached his late 20s and his mother started becoming stranger and stranger and she'd always been fairly controlling i mean there was that incident where in what was it 1917 uh, where he decided that he was going to join the army because of the uh, because of america's entry into the first world war 
and he went down to the recruitment office and signed or at least got you know started signing all the paperwork and stuff like that and his mother found out about it and basically made him you know back out of the whole thing and you know, threatened him with sanctions if he ever tried going ahead and doing that again and you know was obviously very very protective of him but at the same time you know then started becoming quite psychotic herself becoming paranoid you know we're talking about when she was outside seeing strange shapes moving around in the dark and having all sorts of hallucinations and yeah i mean that that's what led to her becoming institutionalized yes at 29 his mother was committed to the very the same hospital his father was committed to but and, and this is a weird thing five years later she dies due to complications of a surgery that happened she had gallbladder surgery, and due to complications, she passed away. And it's right after that, it seems like it's right after that death, that he marries a wealthy woman, wealthier than him, woman, and moves to New York, much to the disapproval of his aunts. Yeah. Well, there were a variety of reasons why they disapproved. I mean, I, uh, part of it, I guess, was the fact that she was seven years older than him. They'd met, again, through amateur journalism circles. She was an amateur journalist as well, and they became friends that way. Uh, this is a woman called Sonia Green. But I think the main reason they disapproved of her was because she was Jewish. Yes. Well, and again, like his family upbringing was also very, um, I, would, I would describe it as Anglo-centric. Oh, waspish, okay. Waspish. His father was very much like a... British file, like he just like just put British people up on a pedestal as we should. Don't get well, well not, not just British <laughs> people, but very specifically English people. English people. Uh, mm -hmm. it, I mean, Lovecraft was initially his his xenophobia and his fear of other races and you know people who weren't like him was incredibly specific that you know he saw himself as coming from english stock and therefore english stock was obviously the best in the world uh, but I, I remember hearing about him freaking out at some stage because he saw indications while researching his family tree that he might have some welsh heritage and this was obviously more than he could cope with. Oh no! <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, he was. I mean, if you read this in in his fiction and in his letters and so on, initially, you know, he was, you know, very xenophobic towards you know basically any Europeans who weren't English or I think he was okay with the Germans. But apart from that, I mean, you know, they, they, not a point in his favor. Not a point in his favor, Scott. <laughs> no, no, no. But there's a jokey, jokey thing that comes up in Lovecraft fandom sometimes. I, I don't know if you've ever seen the the Lovecraft reread uh, column on Tor.com that Ruth Ann Emerus and oh, I can't remember the other woman. The the two of them basically go back and they they reread all these Lovecraft stories and analyze them, or, or as they put it, they get go cooties all over the stories. But <laughs> they <laughs> they they sort of break out it in each examination some of the xenophobic references in there, and the the little segment they've got in each column that's called that is called the degenerate Dutch because of a throwaway line in The Lurking Fear, where he does sort of complain about the degenerate Dutch settlers in this area. <laughs> and it's just, oh yeah, that, that is how xenophobic he was at this time, that you know, the, the Dutch were subhuman because they weren't English. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
I think he was raised, though, with that mentality, and I think that was fostered oh, yeah. in him from an incredibly young age, being in Rhode Island. But like we said, at 34, he marries Sonia Green, moves to New York. New York terrifies him. Yes. Well, he, he seemed to get on all right at first. He made friends there. He made this circle of literary friends who he dubbed the Calum Club. The Calum and... Club, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think he was relatively happy there at first, but it was it was after he moved to Red Hook and Sonny Green, you know, moved away from New York for business, mm-hmm. that yeah, he started getting really weird. <laughs> yeah, th- things took a weird turn. He was I, I call it basically an estrangement from his wife. His wife moved for business to for work and and that, and he was left to his own devices, like basically just. If you were were to reverse it, he was like that housewife that was just left here while her husband went off to business. And she like just didn't know what to do. And that's pretty much like he, he led this sheltered life in Rhode Island. Now he's in New York and now he's basically left. And it was it was a different world to him. He was seeing people that didn't have the same background as him. And I think it, it yes. terrified him. And yeah. It, and I, I, when he was 35 or 36, he was living in Brooklyn Heights, and he, he, his apartment was burglarized. He lost everything, except the clothes on his back is what it says. The clothes on his back was all he had left. So, again, that, that I would think would just heighten his, his fear, and I think that fear, coupled with the being raised to view people differently, I think that kind of heightened that whole, or reinforced his his idea of some people are better than others yeah it certainly focused it because there were a few stories that he wrote around this time which are particularly xenophobic like he in the street which are very much rooted in his bad experiences in new york but also some of the stories that followed like the call of cthulhu have got you know, really quite xenophobic elements in there that seem to be very much heightened by these experiences he had of being around people of different ethnicities, people who spoke different languages than him, and feeling absolutely terrified and well, also quite hateful. There's, there's, uh, I can't remember who it's to, but there's a a notorious letter that he wrote during that time where he was talking about a visit to Chinatown. And who the hell ever thought it would be a good idea to take Howie to Chinatown? I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah, he went down there, and, yeah, he was really, really unhappy with, oddly enough, all the Chinese people around there. And he, in this letter, was talking about how he spent his time there daydreaming that some friendly soul would unleash a canister of cyanogen gas in the area and basically exterminate everyone in it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Wow. What do you think so far has of our story? So moving moving to the second <laughs> act, um, I'm having some issues with the suspension of disbelief. But <laughs> I mean, hearing hearing how he was brought up and he was incredibly sheltered and he had so many from from the sound of it, a lot of uh, strong female personalities just basically spoiling him. So when he moves to New York and his wife is gone, now he's left by himself. Having kind of been in that position, yeah, it, it is terrifying. And you start searching for that 
a similarity to that upbringing when you can't find it, you start lashing out. It kind of sounds like that's what he was doing. Yeah, I, th I think that's that. And I think there's also the fact that he probably felt quite, I, I don't know, maybe emasculated. I don't know if that's the right word, but powerless. Because like, Sonia was obviously the main breadwinner. He did try to find work, but he found himself, because of his background, temperamentally unsuited to any job that he either applied for or on one occasion got, but just turned out to be really awful at. But uh, at the same time, you know, he was... I mean, th this could have been a real turning point. He was actually, at this stage, offered the job of being the editor of Weird Tales and turned it down because to do so would have involved moving to Chicago. And after his experience in New York, he decided that he just, you know, could not cope with living in another urban center like that. And, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, in a parallel timeline where he'd gone down that route, that could have been the making him, of, of him. I mean, it might have deprived us of some of his, his later stories, but I think it might have been the salvation of him as a human being. But also, I mean, there's there's all the other factors that went into his relationship and the breakdown of it with Sonia Green, some of which I think do have relations to his work. So, I mean, obviously, like I said, you know, she, she was Jewish and he had a fairly anti-Semitic upbringing. He saw her as basically one of the good ones. And that I think, you know, while it, it, it obviously you know, helped enough to, you know, get them together and married in the first place, started putting strains on the relationship as it went on. And I think she was quite upset with that. She was quite upset with the fact that, you know, she basically was trying to support him, trying to get him to, you know, go out and follow her to, you know, wherever she ended up working. And none of that happened. And I think that there was also an, an undercurrent of the fact that I, I think in, in today's, yeah, if he were alive today, we'd probably recognise the fact that Lovecraft was asexual. Certainly, that seemed to be a factor in their relationship, that he did try to have a sexual relationship with Sonia, but it didn't really work out too well. And this certainly seems to permeate his fiction quite a lot as well, that his fiction is very aromantic, very sexless. There, there isn't really a lot in the way of relationships. His characters all tend to be single author inserts, ciphers, and there isn't really a lot in the way of you know, human relationship and human connection in there. Or, or where you do get it, it's a sort of very perverse kind, like in The Thing on the Doorstep, where it is, you know, sort of nightmare, you know, funhouse arrived through the world of marriage and sexual politics and sexual relations. Or, you know, even things like The Shadow of Rinsmith, where, you know, it's, it's fundamentally about the horrors of interbreeding. And I think that with Lovecraft, that he saw, you know, sort of sex as being this, this very uncomfortable thing. Um, and, and, yeah, that... That sort of fear of the flesh, that fear of carnality, that fear of humanity and human relationships, that fear of of you know um, of breeding, just seems to be a huge part of his work. I can understand though, given his upbringing. I mean, maybe it was partly just him innately, maybe you know, being asexual. But also, I I mean, I don't think he really saw an actual like loving relationship between a man and a woman growing up and he probably didn't even understand like 
it would that was foreign and if if it's unknown to you it obviously fear it well, there, there was something, I think, in one of his letters or his journals where he talked about, during his childhood education, sort of coming across a, a description of the human reproductive system or you know, how, uh, you know, how babies were made and stuff like that, and being utterly repelled by it. And, you know, again, that, that perhaps, you know, with all the factors you're talking about, sort of did lead to this uh, fear of intimacy and fear of sex. But he did try. God love him. He was a oh, virgin yeah. when he married. Yes. And prior to marriage, he, he bought a bunch of textbooks and he read <laughs> all about it because he was going to do the deed. He was going to do his marital duty. But he, it didn't seem like he did it very often. Definitely didn't do it on the wedding night. He, it took a while. And it, it seemed like he was. It was something he did. He, he did it, but he didn't do it often and he didn't like it. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's why, you know, Sonia Green ultimately divorces him after years of estrangement uh, or separation because she's off working elsewhere. I don't know if that if yeah. that lack of intimacy between them and their relationship led to them divorcing. Was it the fact that his views about, you know, uh, uh, about people, if, if that did it, if, if it was a just him in general, like it just didn't work out or like. Like what led, do you know, Scott, what ultimately led her to decide to divorce him? I, Green did actually write a book about Lovecraft later in life um, in which he did talk about some of these things, but I don't think she, I mean, I could be wrong. I've not read the book. I've only read accounts of it, uh, but I, I don't believe that she sort of pointed at one thing and sort of said, this is why the marriage fell apart. But it sounds like there were just so many fault lines there that it would have been a miracle if they hadn't broken up. Yeah, that that's true. So 42, 43, they divorce. He goes back to Rhode Island. And and this was really sad. He he lives in abject poverty because he never really like was recognized during his time for the stories he was writing. He didn't really make any kind of money off of it. Lives in abject poverty, surviving off of canned food that's already expired. He has a fear of doctors, so when his health begins to deteriorate, he doesn't really go to get help. Not until like months prior to his death does he finally go to a doctor because the pain is so great that he finds out he has intestinal cancer. Months later, he dies in pain, malnourished. Yeah, and he died probably thinking that he'd be forgotten, which you know, obviously he hasn't been. but. Yeah, going going back a little bit, I think, yeah, that whether or not you know, you consider him to be a success in his lifetime depends on how you measure success. Because yes, I, he he eked out a bit of a living by, like you say, selling stories in the polls, but also by doing revisions and ghostwriting. That that was one of his main incomes. In fact, his most famous client was Harry Houdini, uh, who he ghost, initially ghostwrote a story for which was known variously as Under the Pyramids or Imprisoned with the Pharaohs, which I think was published, I want to say in Weird Tales, under Houdini's name, but Lovecraft wrote it. And you know, Houdini and, and Lovecraft actually became pen pals as a result of this, and you know, Houdini wanted Lovecraft to ghostwrite a whole book for him, all about superstition, which Lovecraft, I think, was reluctant to take on, and 
basically passed on. He wrote a bit of it, but then he passed it on to a protege of his, a guy who'd done some ghostwriting for or revisions for, called MC Eddy, or CN Eddy, sorry. <laughs> I like MC Yeti. Yeah, MC Yeti. <laughs> That's uh, my rapper name if I ever decide to become one. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, Eddie was supposed to write this bit, the whole thing never happened. And a partial manuscript was discovered recently. I don't think it's ever been published. But I mean, on top of that, he did an awful lot of other revision and ghostwriting and did make a bit of money from that. So, yeah, it, it wasn't that he had no way of earning money it's just that he you know didn't have much and i the other thing that that perhaps sort of ate into his productivity there was the fact that he was a fantastically prolific letter writer and this in many ways is what led to his real legacy that he uh, you know in his lifetime I, i've seen figures that he wrote something like a hundred thousand letters a mm -hmm. hundred thousand yeah, letters but, yep yeah and he made friends all over the world, but primarily in the weird fiction community. I, he had his initial circle of friends, or his central circle of friends, of him, Clark Ashton Smith, and Robert E. Howard of, of Conan fame. And, you know, the three of them sold a lot of work to Weird Tales. I, well, it was Lovecraft who primarily convinced Clark Ashton Smith to become a weird fiction writer, because until then he'd been an artist. And after Rob E. Howard and, and then Lovecraft died, Smith then gave up writing again and just went back to being an artist. But during that time, he wrote some fantastic weird fiction. But what, what's probably more important is that Lovecraft then became, through these letters, this mentor figure to an entire generation of young weird fiction writers. And I mean, some of these would then go on to become big names in their own rights, like Robert Block, who'd later become well-known for writing Psycho. You know, he was a teenager when he started writing to Lovecraft, and Lovecraft encouraged him, and Block's first stories were Lovecraft pastiches. In fact, in one of his first stories, The Shambler from the Stars, um, he actually you know, had a character based on Lovecraft and killed him horribly in the story. And Lovecraft returned the favor by writing a story called The Haunter of the Dark, which has got a character called Robert Blake in it, based on Robert Block, who he then kills horribly. So it was like a game <laughs> between them. He so when I say he didn't have like success in his lifetime, he he was known. He did influence many people. Yeah. He was the you know a, a, the person that you know could say the father of this genre, whatever. Yeah, Some would say Poe. Poe was one of his influences, as well as the tales his grandfather told him of the the gothic horror tales and in that and his own nightmares and all of that and he's gone on to influence so many writers even to this day neil gaiman stephen king if you were to like the amount of success let's just say just call of cthulhu mythos just the the rpg the books the the stories all that if he was living now the amount of success he would have is far greater like he would be recognized, he would actually be profiting from it, would be far greater than anything he experienced in his lifetime. Oh yes. I mean at a at a convention, there'd be a line around the block just to meet him. <laughs> He'd Absolutely, be charging tons. Yeah. I mean so and and that's the but most artists, we'll call them an, an artist, an author's an artist, most artists tend not to be recognized in their lifetime as we see that with painters most often and it's a sad thing but 
it happens. Do you think he was kind of like just just too ahead of his time for people to really get what he was doing? Or was it what he was doing was just so not what was in at the time? Like you say, his stories were devoid of romance. Well, a lot of successful things did have that human intimacy element in the story. So was he was he too far ahead or was it just people just at that time just couldn't relate to what he was writing, to, couldn't understand it? I, I think a lot of it was just simply down to the fact that the kind of stuff that he was writing at the time was seen very much as being ephemera, that he was writing these stories for pulp magazines. Pulp magazines were disposable things. I mean, within the pulp circles, I mean, Lovecraft was well known. You know, People who read Weird Tales would certainly know who he was. But in terms of the audience he has today, that's, that's dropping the ocean. But during his lifetime, he wasn't published in book form. And I, I guess because of the, the fact that he wrote for the pulps, that wasn't unusual. It's really interesting to contrast him with a contemporary of his who was actually an influence on Lovecraft, and that's Robert W. Chambers. So Chambers is best remembered these days for writing The King in Yellow. And he uh, he was a bit older than Lovecraft, but he he also had lived Lovecraft because Lovecraft did die young. Um, but he uh, uh, Chambers was a prolific writer. He wrote, I think, something like sixty or seventy books in his lifetime. A lot of them were different genres, like romance and historical fiction and stuff like that. He wrote, you know, a number of books of weird tales, and he his his books sold phenomenally during that time. But they on the whole, aren't remembered, remembered today. The only book of his you're ever likely to see out of those is The King in Yellow. And that's primarily because a lot of people now associate it with Lovecraft. But but what made him so successful was the fact that he was writing for a different market. He was, he was writing books. But Lovecraft, in his lifetime, I think he only saw one of his, his stories published in book form, and that was The Shadow of Rinsmith shortly before he died, uh, that was published as a paperback in a limited run of, I think, something like 200, and was riddled with errors. Lovecraft was extremely disappointed with it. So, yeah, it, it would have been difficult for him to be successful just simply because there wasn't a durable form of his work for people to buy. That you know, if he didn't pick it up when Weird Tales was on the Weird Tales was on the newsstand that month, you just wouldn't get it. And so, yeah, that that obviously changed after his death in a couple of respects. I mean, there was, I, I believe, the U.S. Army were the first people to actually publish him in book form, you know, as a, a collection when they collected a bunch of his stories and um, issued it to the troops in the first, sorry, in the Second World War. I, I just know this because Sandy Peterson, when I, I, I interviewed him a while back, uh, he's the author of the Call of Cthulhu RPG. Uh, he he was talking about the fact that his introduction to Lovecraft was this collection of, of uh, stories that was issued to soldiers in the, in the Second World War because his father had a copy. But but after that, you know, one one of these his his correspondents, this super fan who he'd started corresponding with when, uh, when the, the lad was a teenager, was a young man called August Ehrlich, who was so taken with Lovecraft's work that after Lovecraft's death, he basically decided, took it upon himself to preserve it all in book form and actually started up his own publishing company, Arkham House, in order to do just that. And 
Like there, there are, there's a lot of debate about whether or not Lovecraft will be remembered today without Dirlith. I, I think, I mean, I think there's a good chance that he would be. But on the other hand, you know, Dirlith certainly did more than anyone else to ensure that his his stuff got into print and got a larger circulation. So, you know, I think that was probably the turning point. It's just a shame that never happened within his lifetime, or it's a shame that Lovecraft didn't lo live long enough to see that. Maybe if he hadn't died when he was forty-six, then you know, he 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 you know he would have seen this this happen, you know, before he died. But given his life and all the tragedy and loss, suffering, it seems almost fitting. Like, of course, it couldn't end any other way. <laughs> yes, it had to end this way. It had to. It's Cthulhu. There are no happy endings. <laughs> and there, there is also the sort of archetypal, you know, starving artist story there. That yeah, yeah, he did, you know, did die in isolation and penury, thinking he was forgotten. And yeah, it doesn't really get much more archetypal than that. No, no. So Oz, do you want to take a guess at what his religious belief was? <laughs> <laughs> I'm really bad at that, so no. You don't want to. I mean, I would say he he was an atheist because that kind of writing there there are no gods but elder gods, and to worship those would be horrifying beyond measure. But he was indeed an atheist. He sometimes will describe described himself as agnostic, but he was basically atheist. Yes, for New England around that time, you know, pretty. Pretty amazing not to subscribe to some sort of yeah, it's pretty daring. Religion. Yeah, it's also been described as cosmic indifference, which I like that term. <laughs> I'm yes. just cosmically indifferent. But the main philosophy that he held, and you see in in many of his writings, was humanity was an unimportant part of an uncaring cosmos that could be swept away at any moment. It is. An attractive philosophy to a certain sect of people, I suppose. And it certainly proved quite influential. I mean, certainly, I think that strand of, of Lovecraft's work has appealed to a great many people over the years, and it's one that's still very much explored in fiction. I, I'd say if anyone's particularly interested in that side of Lovecraft's work, his literary successor in that respect, and probably someone who explores that to a, you know, an even greater degree, is a contemporary writer by the name of Thomas Ligotti. Ligotti is a weird fiction writer. He's written a, a number of collections of, of weird fiction that absolutely riddled through with, with cosmic indifference and nihilism. But he went one stage further than the Lovecraft in that respect, and he, he even wrote a book of philosophy that summed all this up, that I think owes a great deal to Lovecraft, a book called The Conspiracy Against the Human Race. And if anyone is, is you know, interested in that kind of thing, I highly recommend that book. No, I'll, I'll look into that one, definitely. I think his this idea of insignificance, were but a, you know, a tiny little speck on a planet in a solar system in a galaxy in a universe were insignificant everything's basically meaningless is that a way to cope with his life and everything that's happened like yeah. it doesn't matter if i had a tragic life it's all meaningless anyway i'm i'm in this is insignificant which is that a way to cope with all the tragedy and loss in his life by saying it doesn't really matter because in the grand scheme of everything 
it's meaningless. Quite possibly. I mean, the thing about nihilism is it can be quite liberating that the idea that nothing matters can both be crushing and completely freeing, sometimes at the same time. Uh, and I, I think there might have been an element to that with Lovecraft. I mean, certainly the accounts of people who knew Lovecraft indicate that he didn't seem to be a, a morose person by nature. That, I mean, for example, you know, he had a, a friend, another one of his correspondents, a young man called uh, Robert Barlow, who ended up becoming his literary executor and then later went on to become quite a famous anthropologist. And Barlow wrote about a visit that Lovecraft made to him when he was living down in Florida. And it sounds like, you know, Lovecraft was, you know, fr from those accounts, an incredibly outgoing, gregarious, charismatic person. Barlow wrote about how, you know, he, you know, Lovecraft basically sort of took up residence in the house and all his friends would come around and basically sit around the chair at Lovecraft's feet and listen to him expound and tell stories and were just absolutely enraptured by him. So, yeah, it sounds like he, yeah, he wasn't the sort of miserable, neurotic recluse that he sometimes comes across as in his work and his writings and some accounts. That there was this this more upbeat side to him, this more outgoing side. That yeah, yes, yeah. I mean, he might have been an atheist. He might even have been a nihilist. But I I don't think that everything in his life was born out of misery. No, I, I would agree with that. I mean, everyone's life, you know, it's not 100% tragedy. There there are bright spots. His his love of science is, is a, a bright spot. His I, I, I think he adored and, and respected his grandfather as, as his father figure. I, I, I think he did have bright, happy moments. Nobody lives 100% in nothing but, you know, tragedy and, and misery. So I'm sure he probably had some moments that were joyful and and happy. So I, that doesn't, I wouldn't be surprised. And maybe getting out of New York City and a change of scenery helped him. Maybe it made him feel better. And maybe when he went back, it, depression again. Because I think he did suffer from depression, lifelong Quite depression. Quite possibly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there there are certainly you know accounts in some of the letters that he wrote that do suggest that. But also, I, I'd suggest that not all of his work is nihilistic and and miserable. That, that we've we've talked very much about the horror stories and the Cthulhu mythos in particular, but there is an entire other strand of his fiction, which is the Dreamlands tales, which were very influenced by Lord Dunsany, and these. Yeah, while they tie in with the Cthulhu mythos that there are certain strands that run between the stories, and while there are darker elements, these are at the same time much brighter, more cheerful stories filled with vivid imagination and, you know, quite often, you know, uplifting. So, yeah, there, there definitely was that strand to his work and, you know, his, his worldview as well. That yeah, you know, I, I don't think he was just one thing there. Us, you're a a writer. I've uh, written allegedly. Some of your, I've read some of your stories, and do you think as a writer that you could oscillate between you know the uplifting and then going down the other end? Do you think that's something writers just do, or I mean, does that make sense that he would oscillate between two 
Do you do you relate to that idea? I I do I do. It is like I, as as an alleged writer who has put words on paper and people read it for some reason. There is the stuff that I've written. I get as much positive feedback about the stuff that is more uplifting than the stuff that is full of strife and depressive themes and the the protagonist has to really slog through in order to get there and it's it's based on the mood of the reader as well because sometimes you got somebody who just wants a a more feel-good situation where something is still happening rather than um just terrible dark horrors of the human existence that a lot of us can just draw deep in our own psyche and, and put onto the paper so in my research I found a list. Somebody had created a, compiled a list of all of his fears if you were to take all of his writings. And it's a pretty funny list. <laughs> I just laugh. Like, when you put it out on paper in a list, it's just like, this is crazy. But it's if he wrote about things that frightened him, then this is the list of things that frightened him. Invertebrates, marine life in general, temperatures below freezing, fat people, uh, slightly insulted, but okay. <laughs> Slums. <laughs> percussion instruments. Really? Yeah. Caves. Cellars. Oh. Old age. Great expanses of time. Monumental architecture. Non-Euclidean geometry. Deserts. Oceans. Rats. Dogs. The New England countryside. New York Valid. City. <laughs> New York City. Fungi. Molds. Viscous substances, medical experiments, dreams, brittle textures, gelatinous textures, the color gray, plant life, memory lapses, old books, heredity, myths, gases, whistling, whispering. Hmm. <laughs> it's just like, that's a lot of fear. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, there are a few of those which are obviously quite playful, like old yeah, books, yeah. which obviously mm -hmm. is his main love rather than a big yeah. fear. But yeah, I mean, there are certain you know certain things that they touch on there which are very much themes in Lovecraft's work. I mean, you talked about vast expenses of time. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, that's one of the things that he did so well, which is that as well as making us feel insignificant on a a physical scale that a number of his stories, particularly The Shadow Out of Time and At the Mountains of Madness, play around with this idea of deep time, that the entirety of human existence is just such a brief blip in the history of everything that, again, we don't matter on that scale. And, yeah, he really went to town with that in some of his stories too. You know, quite, quite horrifying effect. The whole fear of the sea, then, yeah, I mean, that keeps coming up in his stories over and over again. But the big one, which, you know, is, is there in so many of his stories, is that one of hereditary, uh, the, oh, sorry, heredity, that he was very much afraid of what might be there in his blood. And I guess, you know, if, if you come from a family where your father was institutionalized when you were three, and then died it, you know, uh, when you were uh, still a young child, and you know your your mother went mad as well. Then, yeah, it's very easy to fear what lies within yourself. 
And this is something that just comes up over and over again in stories. People wrestling with sort of the the monstrous things in their bloodlines, things that are awakening in them, things that will consume them, uh, things that will replace them. And yeah, it's it's I think one of the most effective aspects of his work. So I feel I think I, I achieved my goal in all of this discussion is that there's a lot more to Lovecraft than the knee jerk he's a racist. Hmm. Oh yes. There's a lot more to this man. He lived a a, a hard life, a lot of suffering and pain in it. And I think we can see that, you know, it it gave birth. I mean, he just, he put it all out there on, on paper in a, as you said, a very temporary medium since they weren't in, in books. They were in, you know, the magazines and that. So they, but he got it out. Like he put it out on the paper. He was a prolific letter writer, like you said, 100,000, which I think one account put him at the second most prolific writer in world history voltaire being number one so he's he he wrote he like if it was in his mind it was it ended up on paper and i I think that's good good for us that you know we get to to see this but i i just i would hope people would think a little more when they're you know dealing with cthulhu mythos reading the stories that they kind of think about the the person behind it a little more and and as you coming into this, you didn't know anything. You 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 knew about the mythos, and you didn't really know much about the man. Is there anything that's surprised you to to learn? Aside from the over hundred thousand letters that you just mentioned, probably like yeah, how he died, like stomach cancer from eating expired food. That there's a fear I can write about later. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that. I feel like there was a lot of opportunities he could have taken and he didn't. And, you know, listening to his history about having all of these jobs that he just didn't get or wasn't suited for, that kind of, that resonates because I've done a lot of that as well. I'm like, okay, that that lends a little additional humanity to the man. Because, you know, before this, before even we started playing COC, he was just this this guy that, he wrote all of these, he wrote an aspect of horror that nobody really explored and honestly didn't explore a lot of until I think relatively recently. And as as you go through this and I listen to some of these themes that he's written about, uh, going back to The King in Yellow, I, I was one of the people who thought he wrote that. So hearing that it is uh, kind of a derivative of, of his work, but done by somebody else, I think that's a, well, that's a crime I, actually, to the actually see. Actually, it's the other way around that oh, okay. uh, Lovecraft borrowed the King in Yellow from Chambers. Oh, uh, Chambers. I see. Ch- Chambers wrote those stories in 1895. Okay, okay. So, yeah, and then the, you know, thinking it at least you know he he brought light to it, which is I think is really awesome. But I think that if if he was alive today and doing this and everything just got moved forward, part of me thinks okay, he would have an incredibly larger following. Yes. Part of me also thinks he would have a TI-84 and would have gotten through the math program and graduated and com- <laughs> gone off on a completely different career track. <laughs> Quite possibly. I think when I think of Lovecraft, I, especially now after the, the research I've done, I, 
I don't think of that 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 stoic look that you always see in the photographs of him. I now yeah. think of that precocious that little boy that suffered loss and was an only child and was smart and and loved science and and but due to the upbringing or you know being so sheltered just it kind of stifled him but I, I think of this little boy that probably could have gone on to do so many great things but due to his upbringing and the losses he suffered it just kind of squelched that possibility but at the same time i mean even as a child i lovecraft still had the same kind of joy and mischief that other kids did there is an anecdote about him as a child which comes up i think pretty well every uh, necronomicon every you know the necronomicon is this convention that's held every two years in providence rhode island to celebrate lovecraft's life and work it takes place around his birthday around the 20th uh, the 20th of, of august and he um, the, the opening ceremony takes place in this church, this, this old church in Providence. And it's the one where Lovecraft's family used to attend. And uh, certainly the first uh, Necronomicon I went to, and uh, the, the subsequent one, so I assume this is an annual thing, at some point you know, during the ceremony, someone will sneak up to the organ up above and start playing Yes, We Have No Bananas. And the reason for this is that apparently as a kid, Lovecraft used to love to do that when there was a church service on. He'd sneak up there to the organ and just start playing Yes, We Have No Bananas. So, yeah, yes, yes, he may have had a miserable childhood, but that didn't stop him being a kid. He was a kid, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, goodness. There was also accounts where up until the age of 17, so throughout his childhood, he would get his friends to help him like enact these elaborate stories almost it made me think of larping like he made his friends go larp with him <laughs> you know and, and reenact these stories and, and that I was just, that's it, he seemed like like not everything's 100 percent misery but there were bright moments but it, it it seemed like he had them in his childhood but there were some but i i just think of this little boy that just suffered but he you know was industrious i mean he started a, a journal at, at 12 he was writing when he was young he obviously smart to be reading and ri or writing and at three so it's i don't know what i'm trying to say here i'm trying to articulate my my feeling about him now it's like he's more than what most people say oh lovecraft he's a racist no he was a person who who had a life that had its ups and downs and he had his experiences and his struggles and it, it's not just that He's more. Yeah, He's I mean, a lot more. It's complex, and there are certainly plenty of people who you know, have created great work over the years who you know have turned out to be pretty horrible human beings or held horrible views, and this has not affected their work. And and Lovecraft, yeah, I wouldn't say that he was a horrible human being, but he did certainly hold some fairly horrible views, some of which found their way into his work. And you know, th this is the thing that I think contemporary horror fandom is struggling with the fact that lovecraft ended up becoming so inf influential that he did posthumously shape 20th century horror and and now you know early 21st century horror that his shadow lies over you know the entire genre and that you know there, there obviously are people who 
you know, feel uncomfortable because of some of the things that he wrote and said and some of the things in his stories. And, yeah, I, 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 I you know, that's, that's something that we've, you know, we've got to contend with as a community. And I agree that, you know, it, the, the thing, the problem with this, this debate is that it's become very polarized, that there are people you know, who basically want to see Lovecraft removed from the canon, and I think that is a horrible mistake. But at the same time, you know, there are people, there's a horrible little corner of Lovecraft's fandom who see his his racism as a selling point rather than a problem to be addressed. And, you know, that is also a real problem. And, you know, that's, I think the vast majority of horror fandom is there caught in the middle somewhere, just still able to find enjoyment in his work, you know, as as you say, seeing that he was more than just a problem, but at the same time having to deal with the fact that, yeah, there, you know, there there are aspects of his work that you know are going to be upsetting to people. Some time back, I I did a panel about Call of Cthulhu, and there there was a woman in the audience who asked a question. Uh, you know, I, th- I think she ended up asking how you know we as, as scenario writers end up dealing with with the racism in Lovecraft stories, and you know, the simple answer to that is we don't include it. But the 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 thing she started off with was saying that she'd been playing Call of Cthulhu for a while, and then had gone off and read a bit of Lovecraft, and she'd I can't remember it was either Herbert West Reanimator or the Call of Cthulhu. She'd been reading through it and reached one of the bits of description and just had to put the book down and said, you know, no one prepared me for this. No one told me that there was going to be stuff like this in the, in the fiction. And I think, you know, acknowledging that and preparing people for it, because a lot of it is an affront to modern sensibilities, is pretty essential if Lovecraft is going to survive as part of the horror canon, that we can't, I, we, we don't want to remove him, but at the same time, we can't pretend that stuff isn't there. Yeah, like like you said, acknowledge it, be prepared for it, and just yeah, yeah. Well, I thank you, Scott, for for joining us today. I knew, oh my, I pleasure. knew when I called you an expert at the beginning, you were gonna <laughs> live up to it, and you did. You are an expert. At this. <laughs> well, thank you. You're welcome, and thank you, Oz, for for joining us. And I hope Oz, you you learned a bit more. Uh, I did indeed. Uh, do appreciate it. Thank you for having me on uh, as the uh, as the layman to be explained to. It was very nice. <laughs> oh, <laughs> thank you both, and thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Out of Character. And we will see you.